Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Good morning. Now, I've stood on a couple of stages before, but this is probably the most intimidating one I think I've ever stood on. So if y'all will smile at me this morning... It'll make everything better, I promise. And I've already asked all of the faculty to give you extra credit for something. All right, so uh, I I don't know what it'll do. I don't think it'll help at all, but I've asked. And if it does, then you're welcome. All right, so uh, if you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want you to open with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And uh, Dr. Aiken, thank you for the privilege, the opportunity uh, to be here. Hardly a, a week goes by that I don't meet somebody new and they go, hey, are, are you the Aiken from Southeastern? I said, man, I wish. I keep asking him, adopt me, adopt me, okay? I could, I'd love to join the tribe, man. It would help me in so many ways, but I'm blessed to be here. Dr. Pace, a, a great friend who's uh, preached a number of times with us over at Inglewood, and we're grateful uh, just the opportunity to be here with you as well. And then I came in this morning and realized I'm not going to be able to re-preach this sermon anywhere because I've got a couple of my deacons and some pastoral staff here. So thanks, guys, for making the trip over and ruining a perfectly good next Sunday. All right, so thank you for that. Um, all that it said, uh, hey, uh, as we talk this morning through Psalm 51, there's no illusion in my mind that uh, that this would be a new text for you like you've never run across Psalm 51 before. Um, or that I'm going to drop some, some nugget of truth on you that you've not found in the Greek. Uh, well, if you found it in the Greek, boy, you're in trouble there. So uh, that you've not found in the, in the Hebrew text or something of that nature. But what I do hope you'll see with me is uh, kind of how I found myself into ministry. I want you to recognize with me in these few minutes we have together how the mercy of God fuels the mission of God. And when, when God does something in our lives, it prompts us, it compels us to serve him and to see others come to follow after him and trust him. So uh, let me say to you that uh, just in studying and preparing for this, um, I've found myself deeply convicted in so many different areas. Here's one. There are times in my work as a pastor when it it seems like the connection that I have with the Lord comes across broken places. And what I mean by that is you find yourself praying and, and it seems your prayers don't clear the ceiling. You find yourself studying and you can't seem to get a word from the Lord. A sermon prep, just unfruitful. Nothing comes together, nothing alliterates, none of the resources seem to connect. And often, when that happens, it's due to the fact that there's a break in my relationship with God, that something is amiss there. It could be discord, uh, perhaps maybe with my wife. And uh, Peter tells us that, uh, that I should dwell with her in an understanding way. If I don't, my prayers are hindered. It could be something on a horizontal level like that. It could be something vertically, a, a sin, a conviction God's given me that that. Uh, I've just ignored, I've not, I've not dealt with, and even though he might knock at my heart and ask me, encourage me, draw me, beg of me, come home, 
just dig my heels in and say, I'm not going to do it. In fact, um, I'd love to say it weren't true, but over two plus decades of pastoral ministry, I've dug my heels in more times than I can count and uh, ignored the invitation of my own come to Jesus meeting. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nobody else. All right, let me help you with this. This is going to help you and me, okay? This is yes. This is no. This is what are you talking about, all right? And, and then, then I'll know what to do with that, okay? All right, fair enough? Good. So, um, as I found those things to be, to be true, without exception almost, the congregation would have no idea or if they did, they were just too polite to say anything. They'd walk up after church. That was, it's a great message. And you go, no, it wasn't. Thank you. Uh, and because I know in my heart something's off. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever known something was off and not known? Or maybe you did know why or how? That's kind of the situation that I'm discussing with you uh, today. Almost without exception, they didn't know, or if they knew, they were just too polite. But no matter how others viewed the performance, and I would call it that intentionally, but I knew it was a sham. And, most importantly, God was faithful to not let up. Because it takes God pressing in before we'll ever deal with it and allow Him to have His will and His way in our heart. So our text today draws from maybe one of the most well-known and I would say the most convicting of the penitential psalms that you find. And uh, it's of this psalm that Spurgeon said, and I quote, the psalm is very human. It cries and sob, its cries and sobs are of one born of woman, but it is freighted with an inspiration all divine as if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at his defeat? Now, I concur, as if disagreeing with Spurgeon would be a winning way to start the day. But as we examine the text, here's what I want you to notice with me. I don't want you to miss, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do something that's maybe ill-advised. But I'm going to try to pull back on the stick, take us up out of the, out of the woods, up to about 5,000 feet, and try to observe together what is the big idea of Psalm 51 and what is the heartbeat of God's restorative mercy? And, therefore, what is the fuel of God's redemptive mission? That's the goal. And if I miss it, just be polite. In fact, let's read the text this morning. And can I invite you to do something we do at Inglewood because it reminds me of the authority of the Word of God? If you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? I'm going to read the entire psalm, Psalm 51. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise for You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that your word would settle deep into our hearts as an anchor. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray as you open our minds to what you would have to say to each of us individually and then to us corporately, that our response would be pleasing to you. That's our prayer, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. Three aspects or three features, if you will, of the text. You might even think of them as movements as we move through the text here that I want you to see on the pursuit and the process of repentance in a message I've simply entitled Mercy and Mission. Mercy and Mission. Notice with me the reconciling call of God. The reconciling call. Now, you and I have to remember that the story of Psalm 51, of course, does not uh, begin at Psalm 51. It's one of the seven penitential psalms, but it starts the story, the backdrop of the story goes back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David, King David, the man after God's own heart, David, found himself, placed himself in a position where he shouldn't have been, walking around on his rooftop one night when it was the season when kings were to go out into war, yet he remained behind. And there he He spotted Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his closest military commanders, one of his mighty men. And he spots her and then is enthralled with her and then sends for her and she comes to him and he sleeps with her and she reveals to him some days later that she's pregnant and it's his. And David, completely overwhelmed, I imagine in my heart, according to the New Chris translation of the Bible, absolutely floored by this and thinks I could either come clean or I could cover it up and decides to cover it up. In fact, he 
crafts a scheme in his mind to bring Uriah back from battle, recalls him, asks him some silly questions, thinking, surely he'll go home and he'll have a night with his wife and then we'll claim it's his. But Uriah, with more honor than him, sleeps on the doorsteps. A second attempt then failed. And then David sends orders through his general, his four-star, the chairman of the joint chiefs, if you will, and says, I want you to send them off into battle, and I want you to put Uriah right on the front lines where he's bound to go, and then I want you to pull back the soldiers from around him. I want you to lay him out. I'm a military guy. Lay him out as a sacrifice by himself. Leave him there to be slaughtered by the enemy. Not only to fall, but to fall in battle to the enemy and to do so because his own men pulled back. This is exactly how things go along the way there. And then after hearing of Uriah's death, along with the deaths of other soldiers who in the withdrawal, who in the pulling back also fell to the enemy's sword, David plays the man and goes and and says, well, I'll just be honorable and I'll bring Bathsheba to my house and she'll be my wife and now no one will know and I'll get to raise my own child. Everything will be fine. No one will even realize my sin. Well, that's ridiculous. I spent 13 years in law enforcement and here's what I know about the greatest of crimes. If there's more than one person involved, somebody's going to squeal. There were people in the community that knew Somebody had to go get Bathsheba and bring her to the king's palace. Somebody saw her leave the next morning. There were people that knew, but no one was going to say a word. David thought he was over it. And then an entire year goes by while the secret lay dormant. Or did it? A year. A year, if you will, that David sat in his shame and in his despondency. A year between his adultery and Nathan's confrontation. A year of living a lie. A year of lacking the presence of God in earnest. A a year of lying in bed and thinking of the moments that led to the heavenly silence that took him from being a man who heard from God and spoke on behalf of God and wrote for God, who lived for God, to being a man who couldn't even hear from God. A year of ruling with his game face on while at the same time alone. How many times do you and I resist our right response to God and wallow in our shame, work under our power, smile at saints, but suffer like a salted slug writhing in dryness and tortured by the force of the sun? On the outside, everyone thinks it's great. Here... I've been a Baptist a long time. You walk into church, what's up, man? Love you. Good to see you, bro. Good to see you. But on the inside, dry as dust. Nothing happening. It's not there. You may say, I have no experience with this, Chris. This has never happened to me. If that's true, would you mentor me? I mean, I'm looking for somebody who that's never been true of. Help me to understand what it's like to never be on the outside looking. And David was in that spot, but David was in that spot for a year, knowing something was off, trying to fake it, and not ever finding the answer. Leading according to his wisdom and strength, unknown to most around him, but dying on the inside. And then the grace of God, 2 Samuel chapter 
12 and verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God, God found him. God saw David in his suffering. God saw David and did not approach him as an angry despot, but as a loving, reconciling father and sends a prophet to him to confront him. And David, or Nathan does so, by the way, unflinching in his confrontation, and David yields to the grace of God. And I think to myself, what a gracious God not to allow us to persist apart from purpose. And we see David's repentance. He moves from covering up his sin to uncovering it before the Lord. And the Lord moves from uncovering David's sin to covering it according to his mercy. Look at the first two verses with me. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's response to the Lord illustrates his desire for reconciliation and God's response demonstrates the heart of God to reunite with the rebel. It's not unlike the truth that Paul tells us in Romans 5 and verse 8 when he reminds us that God demonstrates his own love toward us. In while we were yet sinners, while we were in active, ongoing, fierce rebellion against God, Christ died for us. What a great God. He's not relentless in his pursuit of reconciliation. Or he is relentless. And that's so important. I think David wanted to tell. He wanted to get this out. The longer his lie festered, the more he wanted to just come clean. You say, how could you even know his mind? Because I was once 15. And I skipped school for the first time. The last time too, by the way. First and last, but I just want to let that hang there. But I skipped school and I left with some friends and uh, we went and got into crazy stuff we should never have gotten into, which you'll never get me to confess because I'm not sure the statute of limitations is over. But the uh, thought we had it hidden. But have you ever, you ever done something wrong and it hung there? You knew, you're anxious, every time something happens, you jump, you just never know what's going to, who's, how, that was me. And then my mom came home, which she did every night after work, and she came home and she asked a crazy question. She said, how was school today? Now you may think, well that's not that odd of a question, but I don't remember ever asking it before. Maybe Holy Spirit was just working in my heart going, she knows. And it took 2.8 seconds for me to confess everything and just laid it all out before. And this is what happened and this is what I did and I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry. She said, oh, you're going to be sorry. Your dad will be home soon. But anyway, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, what a gracious God to send someone to ask the question to bring us to deal with our own sin so that we can get it out and be restored in relationship where we're supposed to be. The reconciling call. Secondly, the restorative process. The restorative process. Now, much can be found in the passage about the requirements for restoration. I tried many ways to categorize these things, and there's a number of them that are in there, but let me just give you a couple that stand out to me. First of all, there's the personal ownership of sin. Verse 3. 
David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And here's what he didn't do. He didn't offer some vague acceptance of culpability. Well, I, I'm sure I did some of this wrong that you see, and I'll take credit for He didn't do any of that. He didn't say, well, I'm kind of certain what I did. He, he flat out owned it. I know my transgression, my sin. It's in front of my face. I see it, and I own that. I acknowledge it. He didn't shift blame to, to his own upbringing. He didn't try to fault the system as being against him. Or he didn't claim that his parents never trained him right. He acknowledged the fact that a sinner is a sinner for one reason. He sins. He said, I know my transgression, my sins ever before me. There's a personal responsibility. By the way, apart from that personal acceptance and responsibility, there is no real repentance. You may say, sure there is, Chris. No, listen, I've been pastoring long enough to know there are a lot of people who believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They just don't believe they're part of that all. They like the all when God sent his son to save all who would call on him. But they don't like the all that says they sin. They don't think their peace is there, but you've got to own it personally or you can't have it. There's secondly, there's an accountability to the offended party. Look at verse 4. Not just his personal responsibility, but there's accountability to the offended. Verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, surely there's somebody else who's in trouble here. I mean, Bathsheba, I mean, she, she got done wrong and... And then, and Uriah, I mean, for heaven's sake, surely Uriah's a victim of David's sin. And what about the other soldiers that were there? What about Joab and having to carry out the order? What about all of these other things that took place? Surely there's others that sin. There is, but now the point is, every one of those horizontal relationships pales in comparison to this vertical relationship. See, it'd be easy for us to sit and say, well, I, I, know I, I know I sinned against that professor because I, you know, I was supposed to read all of that and I didn't quite get through it, but I read some of all of it, so I signed off on the fact that I read all of it and it got quieter than I thought it was. So hold on. That sin ultimately isn't against the professor or against the institution or against an accreditation or against your own honor. It's ultimately against the God who made you. Our sins against him, against you and you only, I've sinned. Yes, we can sin against others, but ultimately to sin against another is to sin against the God whom, who made them in his image. There's personal responsibility, there's accountability to the offended, and then there's the acknowledgement of the extensiveness of David's sinfulness. The more he thought about it, the more he realized there's nothing good that dwells in me. Verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not looking for a blame game there. He's just saying, for as far back as I can ever know or imagine or realize, I've been a sinner. And not just a sinner like a sinner, but like a sinner. I'm a wretch. You say there's no way David could take responsibility as a young one. I mean, how do you know he even sinned when he was young? Dr. Aiken mentioned I have grandchildren. I've got a three-year-old. I'm telling you, his parents never trained him once to be a sinner, but it's deep in his little old wretched heart. 
deep. I watched the manipulation. You, you understand. David said, from the beginning, I've been a sinner, and it's, it encompasses me in totality. It's comprehensive. And then notice how he asked God for his help to change that, to reverse that. There's several affirmative things he asked God to do. Purify me and wash me, he says in verse 7. Blot out my iniquities, in verse 9. Create in me, God, a new heart, verse 10. Restore my joy to me, verse 12. Sustain me, verse 12. Deliver me, in verse 14. These are things, God, I need you to do this on my behalf. Apart from that, I'm, I can't do it. You must do this. By the way, you can't get saved till you realize you're in such a mess that you need to be saved. And if you could save yourself, you don't know you're in that big of a mess yet. Every person who's saved knows they need to be rescued. And then he gives some negative language, some of the converse of that. Not positive things God do for me, but some things God don't do. He says, God, don't look at me. Hide your face from my sins, verse 9. In other words, turn away. I can't bear for you to look at this terrible thing that I've done and the one who's done it. And then he says, do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me, verse 11. Do not cast me away. Do not take your spirit from me. Are you saying, Chris, that David in some sense realized that in the midst of all of the brokenness in his life and in the midst of all that was necessary for God to clean him up, to change him, he still recognized the presence of God? Either personally or prophetically, yes. And I think it's interesting to me that in the midst of all of that, there's still a sense that God had not altogether abandoned him. Reminds us that when David was faithless, God remained faithful. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13? If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And I might go as far to argue that David has a clear grasp on God's covenant faithfulness or his loving kindness, his chesed that he mentions in verse 1. This this thing that God has toward his own promise toward himself that he'll never abandon because he is who he says he is. And because of that, he'll do what he says he'll do. Now, some people, they talk about coveted and they think of it like a contractual agreement. When I bought my first, my first home, I made a contractual agreement with a lender. I said, if you'll let me live there, I promise to send you this much money on a regular basis. And if I stop doing that, you have a right to remove me from this. It's an if-then equation. And some think our covenant with God is the same way. And yes, we do see that, uh, that obedience oftentimes does equal blessing. And disobedience oftentimes does equal justice or judgment or cursings. But that's not chesed. Chesed is a... A covenant that God makes not with you and I, but with himself. It's one-sided. It's God's faithfulness to his own plan and to his own purpose. Well, Chris, is that just your imagination? It could be, but I, I did eat pizza last night, so it could be that. But 
I think it's really the Bible. Genesis chapter 18, do you remember when he had Abram and he said, Abram, I'm going to give you all of these things. This land, it's all going to be yours. And Abram said, how will I know this to be true? God said it. It already told him. He says, I'm the God who brought you up. I'm going to give you the land. Yet Abram questioned, and God said, go bring me this list of animals and, and slice them in, in two and place them there, and then let's talk together. And then as it became dusk and Abram became sleepy, it was God who took a walk between them, the parts, the pieces. It was God who took a walk between them. As to say, this covenant I'm making with you and really... I'm backing it with my word, not by your obedience. I'm backing it. Chesed. David, I imagine, thought, when God signed me on to this, I've not fulfilled what he created me for. I didn't do it the right way. And yet God said, that doesn't surprise me. So he didn't take his presence. He didn't remove himself. And now David is seemingly aware of these things. My days of wrestling with a call to ministry, I worked as a police officer, a deputy sheriff in upstate South Carolina. Man, I can't tell you the number of arrests I made that led to professions of faith in the back of a police car. Man, lots of folks wanted to get saved. But they thought, man, and once I get saved... That means you're going to stop, open the door, take off the handcuffs, and get me an Uber. Well, actually, no. Because just because because you've given your life to Christ, if you have, doesn't free you from the consequences. David came to realize that. Consequences abounded. The the child that he and Bathsheba had died. His kingdom, constant turmoil. His own family, constant turmoil. He still paid a high price for his sin. Yet, he also found forgiveness. How do you know? Nathan said so. Nathan told him, God's forgiven you. David, I think, experienced the full grace of God in the days ahead. And uh, he lived under that grace. Not perfectly, but like you and I live under that grace. I believe he was a changed man. How do you know? Notice this final piece right here. It's where I've been trying to get to all morning. The responsive passion that we see in David. Notice with me the focus or the purpose of forgiveness is not merely or even primarily about the absolution of the sinner. Rather, it's about the ambassadorship of the saint. Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13, restore or turn back or return to me, he says, the joy of your salvation and sustain to support, sustain me with a willing and inclined or generous spirit. Sustain me with that God. I don't want to go back here again. Return to me and hold me up with this God. And then, he says, I will teach you transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted by the way that word converted same root as the word restore he says if you'll restore me God I'm going to tell of you and teach others about you that they may also be restored in the same way to you 
Verses 14 and 15, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. He says, God, as you save me from the guilt of shed blood, I'll sing and I'll declare your praise. By the way, just as a parenthesis, that's why it always entertains the preacher when folks don't sing in church. Because if you've been saved and he's really set you free, I don't know how you, I don't know how you don't at least try off key or seven or eight different keys in one verse. Because once he's done something in you, you can't help but want to get it out. And that's all David's saying. God, if you restore me, I'm going to help others to see you. He's not offering a quid pro quo. God, I need salvation, so here's the deal. I'm offering you this so you'll save me. He said, you're already the God of loving kindness. God, as you restore that joy to me, I'm going to live out of that from this point forward. And isn't that the point? Hadn't it always been the point? I mean, it's not like God created mankind, then looked around and said, Surely they can handle the assignment. I mean, look at them. He didn't do that. He knew from the very beginning. The baptizer said, here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. God knew from the foundation we'd need a Redeemer. He knew we'd blow it. He knew all along we'd miss it. He knew that Christ would redeem all along. He also knew that it would be, listen, the redeemed that tell the compelling story that others in need of redemption respond to. It's the redeemed who tell the compelling story that others in need of redemption would respond to. I like to illustrate it this way with our church. and It's as though our life were a canvas. Now, I'm about as artistic as uh, paint by numbers. But it's as though our life were a canvas. And you and I go about in our life making choices that bring brush strokes of failure and regret and suffering and sin and all of these things over the canvas of our life. When we get saved, God doesn't take the canvas and destroy it. He but paints over a gospel picture by the master a masterpiece for the world to see so that they recognize that guy got saved look at the change in his life tell you this and we'll be done did you know it's common now for for a scientist to they've discovered that's under some of the world's most beautiful paintings most majestic masterpieces that they found that there was something painted beneath them. For instance, Picasso's Blue Room, a portrait, this is how original this is, of a woman bathing in a blue room, has beneath it a portrait of a bearded man wearing a jacket and a bow tie. I know why he covered over it now. But anyway, beneath Van Gogh's patch of grass painting is a portrait of a Dutch peasant woman. And beneath Francisco Goya's portrait of a Spanish judge, Don Ramon Satua, is a portrait of Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother. You say, well, why did they paint over them? There was something imperfect about them that they came back and they made more perfect afterwards. Isn't that what God does with us? He takes what we do 
And then he paints over it in such a way that only he could do. So that others would see and not say, what a great canvas. They say, what a great artist that's painted this new portrait on the canvas of life. I think the fuel of missions and the fuel of our lives and the focus of our lives is and has always been that you and I would live aware of our sinfulness, would embrace God's plan for redemption and restoration, and then would be used by Him to make that call to others that they too could experience a redeemed life. The fuel for missions is not guilt, but it's an awareness of who God is, how broken we are, how far God went to restore us, how He has in fact restored us, and then commissioned us to be able to take that that others may know. Don't give up. If, you, if you've been faking it or you've been living a sham, it's not over. That's not final or fatal or futile. It's just the step that you need to take. God, I want to begin again. And you can do that even today. Can I pray for us? Father, would you in, in our hearts, would you do the searching work that only you can do? And Lord, if there's anything within us, would you put your finger on it? Lord, I'm, I'm mindful. I've sat in so many seminary chapels as a student. I'm mindful that uh, it's easy to just slide by and no one really know. No one but you, of course, and us. And I'm asking you today, if, there, if there's a burden that holds back one of us, that we'd be aware of it and we'd follow as David did. Seek after your cleansing, your redemption, your restoration, and then God allow you to do what it is only you can do. And then, with the restored joy, find us faithful to help others see what you're painting on the canvas of our lives by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.